Hi everyone! Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host Cici Wong, and you're listening to my interview podcast, where I chat with people from all walks of life to hear their stories and to share insights we can all learn from. This week, I'm talking to a guest who has pulled off some incredible feats that the rest of us would find hard to believe. Ray Zahab is a celebrated Canadian adventurer and ultra-distance runner known for his jaw-dropping feats, such as running 7,500 kilometers across the Sahara, running solo across the Atacama Desert, known as the driest desert on Earth, and breaking the world record for the fastest unsupported expedition to the South Pole. Now, Ray is all about turning the impossible into possible and telling the rest of us that we can too. During our interview, we talked about his extraordinary transformation from a sedentary packaday smoker to an ultra-distance runner, and his various expeditions as an adventurer. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Cece. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So, what have you been up to lately? What have I been up to lately? I mean, I you know what haven't I been is the way how I feel. <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's the change of the seasons where I live in Chelsea, Quebec. And so my daughters, who are 13 and 11, are heavily involved in sports. They're competitive in biathlon and cross-country skiing and and sprint kayaking and and they love the trail run. So that's the big that's the big adventure for for my wife and I these days is trying to keep up to them and what their schedules are with their own sports. But, um, you know, myself, I just returned from an expedition to Ellesmere Island, uh, where unfortunately we had to turn back a little bit early uh, due to safety concerns, but we'll be heading back up there next February. So I guess you could say I'm in training for an expedition that I plan to continue next winter. And as well, I am training right now for a project that I'll be doing in Death Valley uh, later in July. So lots on the go. Wow. So how long do your trainings usually take uh, before an expedition? I typically train for a year to a year and a half for one project specifically. Uh, the project I'm doing in Death Valley, Death Valley is sort of like one of these places. There's a couple of spots on the planet that I just have this absolute passion for. And I go and I've done, you know, multiple adventures. For example, Baffin Island. I've been across Baffin Island nine times. I just love the region of Baffin that I do visit uh, the island of Kikiktarjuak off the eastern coast of Baffin as well, northeastern coast. I, I love it. And and, and Death Valley is kind of like the same thing. So preparing for Death Valley for me uh, is, is I have a base of fitness from this other expedition to Ellesmere that I trained for a year for. And now I'll continue that running training. So I'm ready to go to Death Valley in July. But, you know, it's also environmental. I'm also training for the environments that I'll be in. So, for example... In um, Death Valley, it's the hottest place on Earth at the hottest time of year. Going to Ellesmere, it's one of the colder places on the planet at the coldest time of year. So they're diversely different. Um, and um, because of that, it's different modalities of, of training and preparation for the extremes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to get into how you went from somebody who never did a lot of sports to somebody who's this ultra-distance runner going on all these sorts of extreme adventures. So what is the story behind how you transformed back in 1999? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I've been asked that many times. As a matter of fact, I was giving a presentation the other day in Montreal, and I was talking about this specifically, that 
every one of us goes through transitionary phases in our lives. Like there's pivotal moments in life, right? Where something that's really important to us is happening. And sometimes the most difficult things that we that we experience in our lives are very relative to us as individuals. So how you feel that or how you internalize that time of your life or that thing that's going on in your life is, is very relative to yourself. You can't really explain how you feel to someone else. It's really hard to do. And for me, uh, as you mentioned, 1990s, late 90s, I was going through what I felt was a very difficult period of my life. I Although outwardly was very happy, you know, life of the party, having a grand old time, I was very unhealthy. I was consuming way too much booze. I was smoking a pack a day. Um, I just was starting to live a life that really wasn't, I guess, productive. I can't think of a better word. But more, more importantly, I was deeply unhappy deep inside. I wasn't really passionate about anything. I didn't really have any direction. Anything I would start, I wouldn't finish. And I just felt disconnected from myself and I knew something had to change. I just didn't know how to make that change happen. And, um, you know, they say sometimes when you're in these, these times of our lives that the people that you've always been closest to, all of a sudden you see them in a different light and, and they become reintroduced to you as, as like a leader in your life. And that was my younger brother for me. Uh, John, who's an amazing adventurer, he's he's a mountain biker, a climber, a paddler, he does all these different sports. And at the time, I saw him go through sort of a life transformation of his own a few years before I decided to. And he became this person who was in such great shape and so enthusiastic and inspired just to get up every day and go do something cool. And I thought to myself, wow, how amazing would it be to feel just a little bit like he does. I can't help but think that my life would be different if I did. And so I decided that I would try and follow him in his footsteps. And it would take me three years to quit smoking. It was probably the most difficult thing I ever did from the point when I decided I was going to change. And I would put my foot in the pool, if you will, now and then and pull it right back out again. And I would try to do some of the sports my brother was doing. And, you know, just it was a real difficult period. And then the day I finally decided on New Year's Eve 99, that was going to be it for me that things were really going to be different in 2000, sort of like a New Year's resolution thing, um, I followed it through. And, you know, as my buddies always say, I never went back inside. And that's kind of how it started for me. So back in your 20s, at your lowest point, were you sort of just wandering through life or a little bit confused? Like, how did you get to that point of deep unhappiness? Well, I think... Again, it's relative, right? I mean, I had a great childhood, amazing childhood, amazing friends, amazing parents. You know, it's just, you are who you are and where your head is at is where your head is at, right? And I just, you know, I think it was, you know, barely making it through high school, you know, dabbling in community college. I mean, you just kind of like never find your way sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. I think that negativity and being unhappy is something that can perpetuate itself. It's like a big warm sleeping bag. It's easy to slip into and it's comfy. It's it's a comfortable place to be. But being happy and being passionate about something and working hard to make it happen, for some of us, it's very difficult to do that. And in those early days, it was really difficult. So when I was 30, turning 30, I decided that I just was no longer satisfied with seeing the world with the glass half empty. And I was going to force myself to see it with the glass half full. I determined 
that I was going to go in that direction. But why did you turn to the world of ultra marathon of all things? Because that's like the most difficult sport ever. <laughs> well, one thing leads to another, right? So over those course of those few years of doing sports with my brother and getting in the outdoors and all the things that he was teaching me about the outdoors, I began mountain bike racing. And then I was adventure racing. And I was learning that, wow, I have this engine that my brother has to do these things. It was like, it was a 180 degree shift in my life. Like I seriously can remember uh, when I was smoking a pack a day, going up a set of stairs and being completely winded to a point where I could be competitive in a mountain bike race, climbing steep mountains on my bike, like in a span of just a few years. And I thought, wow, like how, how fortunate I am to feel these two different sides of my life. And I didn't have a lot in those days. I mean, I was renting an apartment in Chelsea, Quebec that used to be a sandwich shop. And I had my mountain bikes and my weights and my futon and a bed. And I could barely pay my rent and I didn't have a lot of groceries, but I was feeling good, right? And I was learning a lot about myself and I thought, this is awesome, right? And one thing would lead to another and I would eventually read an article in a magazine about ultra marathons and in particular about a hundred mile, 160 kilometer running race in the Yukon. And I was so blown away by the concept that people could do these things. Like my brother had run many marathons. I'd seen him run, you know, several marathons. Marathons were his thing, right? But, you know, to, to see and read an article about people doing this incredibly long bout of endurance, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what is, what makes these people so extraordinary? And after seeing pictures of them, I realized it wasn't a physical thing, that it was a mental, emotional thing, that these people had realized through their own experimentation and trying something so extraordinary that whether they finished or not was irrelevant. They were able, they were able to will themselves to go and do something like that. And that to me was so inspiring that potentially we could exceed physical and mental limits that we think we have and emotional limits as a matter of fact as well. So I decided to enter that race to see if I could do the things that they did. And, you know, a few months later, there I am on the start line of my first running race and I won it and now it wasn't a big field of runners it's not like it's the uh you know Vancouver Marathon or something like that but you know still the I to win an endurance event are you kidding me I I never would have thought that I would be the guy to do that but I realized in that moment that we do underestimate ourselves the human beings are capable of our own each of us our own version of extraordinary in our lives, as much as we're capable of messing things up dramatically, we are also capable of doing extraordinary things in our lives. And I realized that running in that moment would become my greatest teacher. And it would lead me around the world doing running races for a period of time. These ultra marathons, I would do them. I traveled. I wasn't traveling before I started that, not that much before I started doing ultra marathons, but ultra marathoning took me all over the world jungles, deserts, everything. I was in Libya. I was in Egypt. I was everywhere. And I fell in love with the Sahara Desert. And one thing would lead to another. And I came up with this idea with a couple of buddies of mine to run across the entire Sahara Desert. And that would be my first expedition in 2006, 2007. We ran 7,500 kilometers over the course of 111 days. I want to get into that a little bit later for sure. But I just want to ask, for that very first win that you just described, do you attribute it to mostly your training or it was the mental willpower that you had to just finish it? 
No, I think that a huge part of it was the old saying, ignorance is bliss. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And by the time I got there, I was there to experience something. I had no idea what that experience was going to be or how it was going to turn out. I hoped it would turn out okay, but I didn't know. And I think that that unknown and that commitment to that challenge was what got me through it. But I mean, there's times in that race where for sure I thought I wasn't going to finish. I mean, for crying out loud, halfway, when I made it to the halfway point, I thought, there's no way that I'm going to make it to the finish. Like, there's just no way. Like, my, I was in absolute pain. I was alone in the woods at night. I mean, it was just horrible. But something in me realized that I wasn't there to impress others or to, you know, the people that I, friends back home that I committed that I was going to go do this thing and they all told me it was a bad idea. I wasn't there to prove anything to them. I was actually there for me. Like, that's why I went there. I spent everything I had to go there. And so I committed to myself that I would continue and just go as far as I could, even though I thought I couldn't take another step. I knew I had a few more in me. And one step led to another, and it eventually led me to the finish line. So you think anybody could do it? I think anybody can do anything they set their minds to. But you've got to have that passion piece. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today, and I was explaining to her that I have a neighbor who's a really great artist. Like she's a really well-known artist. And every time she creates a new work of art, I'm like blown away by it. I'm like, where does this come from? So, and obviously she works at it, right? That's her thing. She found her thing and she's passionate about it and she loves it. I think it's gotta be something like that because I sure as hell could not create what she creates, right? I could give it a good stab and I might love doing it. But it's like you find that thing that just really drives you, you know? Mm -hmm. So what is it that really drives you to do these races? Well, I don't race anymore. For the expeditions now, I mean, that's a much bigger piece for me because now things have evolved so much over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Now I'm doing these expeditions and I'm connecting them to classrooms and I'm in places learning about not only culture and people and making lifelong friends in the remotest parts of the world, but I'm also learning lessons of not only the obvious stuff like how to adapt to that outdoor situation I'm in, but also I'm learning about life from different people in different countries with different experiences on life. And I'm learning how vastly different our lives can be depending on the region of the planet we live in, but how incredibly similar we all are in our needs and hopes and, uh, you know, simple things like wanting a better life for our families than we have. These things I'm learning uh, and, and, are, and are hoping to share with young people who follow my expeditions and anyone who's following along, these are the things that drive me now. You know, the adventure aspect is still there, obviously, because the stuff that's left to do, I mean, that I want to do... Uh, before I get too old, uh, to where I feel like I'm not performing at my ability, it, it's hard stuff. It's hard yeah. to do, you know? So <laughs> I want to get the most out of it that I can. Yeah. I want to talk about one of your most famous expeditions, which you mentioned uh, before, um, the uh, Sahara Expedition. That was back in 2006, 2007, and um, it was actually captured in a documentary called Running the Sahara, produced and narrated by Matt Damon. So you did that expedition with two other um, ultra-distance runners, and it was this 111-day, 7,500-kilometer journey. Tell me where you got the idea for such an expedition. 
Well, you know, the idea for the expedition, it's one of those things that sort of percolates. You're talking with your buddies and you're like, hey, I got an idea. And the next thing you know, um, one thing's, uh, you know, happening in six degrees of separation, serendipity, this, this mad recipe comes together and you find yourself on the western coast of Africa on in Senegal and you're with your two buddies and there's a Hollywood film crew that are going to make a documentary uh, about your run across the Sahara Desert. You know, it, it's just one of those things. And I, honestly, when I stood on the West Coast, even though I'd done a ton of running and a ton of ultra marathons in that span from 04, 05 into 06, I thought, there is no way I'm going to make it. Like, these two guys were legit running badasses. They were like, they'd been doing this stuff forever. They were really good at what they do. Um, there's no way I'm going to make it. You know, and if I make it to halfway, I'll be happy. Uh, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into in that aspect. But I committed to one day at a time. Like, what's the old uh, saying? They say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You know, it, I just said to myself, get through each day at a time, dude. Just get through one day at a time. And that's sort of how it started. Now, the documentary film was to capture our run across the Sahara, this, this crazy expedition that attempting something in this way had not been done, but it became about so much more. It became about the water crisis in North Africa, the people we were meeting along the way, the stories we were gathering more than just the run. You do a lot of these trips to also raise awareness on issues that are important to you. I do. I, you know, and, and when I started impossible to possible, my foundation, which I know you're going to ask me about, um, when I started the foundation in 2008 with my buddy uh, Bob Cox in Los Angeles, that was transformational in the fact that that became the raison d'etre for all of my expeditions, was to really drive home to young people what they were capable of, connect my expeditions live by satellite to classrooms, create amazing and compelling content for the schools so they could be immersed in the cultures and, and in the geographies that I visit. But even more importantly, bring young people on expeditions of their own. And so the fundraising aspect through doing my own expeditions was driven towards our own foundation, Impossible to Possible. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, for the uh, Sahara trip, how did you know at the onset if it's even physically doable, given like the heat, uh, the long hours? Well, we didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know. You just we went for know. it. We had no idea. We just went for it. We trained as best we could. We prepared as best we could. You know, you, you have to, you got to get into this mindset when you're doing these things that, hey, I may not make it, but I'm hoping I will, you know, and you got to have that optimism. And I think that that's where that glass half full, it's like the unwavering, unfailing entrepreneur. Like you read about, I, I'm, I'm probably going to get this all messed up, but when Bezos started Amazon, there's that photo of him with a desk and he's got like Amazon printed like on printing paper right above his desk and that was his office but he believed like there's a good chance it's gonna crash and burn but he believed he could do it you know and I, I think that you have to have that glass half full even as dire as things can get that there is still this outstanding possibility that you can do this if of the planets line up you know Mm -hmm. But um, for your expeditions, I know that a lot of planning does go into all of them, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of planning goes goes into it. Typical for me for each expedition could be four years of planning 
of logistics and, uh, and that sort of stuff just to get to the point that you're at the start line. And the training and the preparation as well, that can't be understated. But truly the most difficult part is the logistics of any expedition. It, because the places that I'm going, some of them, when I crossed the Atacama Desert, for example, north to south, summer 2011, um, many parts of that desert had not been, there'd be no reason to go out there. You know, like, I mean, it's ridiculously hot, ridiculously remote and ridiculously dry. Like there's no water out there. There's no life out there. And so to go there, you really have to want to go there. It's so remote. And so getting accurate maps besides, you know, using Google Earth, which, you know, doesn't really give you a representation of what actually the physical ground feels like, um, you know, it's super difficult. Or for example, an Arctic expedition where you have to charter aircraft to get to your starting point. Everything's got to be, you know, working. The weather's got to be, everything's got to line up or it's not going to happen. So planning logistics is critical. Mm -hmm. What was your daily schedule like when you were uh, doing the Sahara expedition? Well, we sort of set it up almost like a regimented plan. We would wake up every morning at the same time. We took the lead of our expedition team leader, if you will, a man by the name of Mohamed Iksa from Niger. He led the expedition. Actually, he's been here to Chelsea, Quebec to stay with us at our place, which is just amazing. An amazing man, knows the Sahara Desert pretty much better than anyone. He sort of would lead that, you know, here's what the planning looks like, guys. Like, you know, you're up every morning super early, uh, you know, avoiding that hottest part of the day, running until noon, taking a few hours off, eating, and then running until it was dark. And that's just how we did it. And at first we were stressed out about mileage. But after a while, we were like, okay, you know what? We're going to have big days. We're going to have days where you're in a sandstorm or the terrain is really difficult and you're not going to be able to make amazing mileage. And as it turned out, we averaged about 70 kilometers a day. Mm, I see. Yeah. Did anybody get sick midway? Sick, injuries. We had everything. We had it all. I mean, that's part of the deal, though. You have to anticipate that those kind of things are going to happen. Now, interestingly, over the years since then, knock on wood, when I'm on expeditions, I tend to adapt to my environment and my situation a lot faster. So those injuries are less, like blisters, for example, I rarely get them anymore, mm. you know? I see. So, but like, if you do get sick, what do you do? Well, you know, you, you, you plan the best you can. Like now in the case of running the Sahara, there was a team doctor, but on most of my expeditions, like to, to reference the Atacama game, <laughs> there was no team. It was me out there, and then it was Bob, the co-founder of Impossible to Possible, who was crewing, and a buddy of ours, and sometimes two of our buddies from Chile. And that's it. That's what we had, and that's who I was aiming for. So, you know, you have a medical kit, and you do the best you can, and if it's a heinous injury, then you got to evacuate, you know? Mm, yeah, like you've also done some solo um, expedition too, right? Like what happens when you're just by yourself? Well, you know, it's, you plan like crazy. I plan my expeditions more than I plan my trips to the grocery store, <laughs> right? So I know every kilometer or as best I can what my plan is for each kilometer that I'm on on an expedition. So I'm well planned before I go. So you're mitigating risk by good planning. And in doing so, you build confidence. And when you build that confidence in what you're doing, not a, not a foolish confidence, but a confidence, then you're able to navigate situations with a clear head and make good decisions. Yeah. 
So for the Sahara expedition, I believe that、um, midway, I think Kevin wasn't doing so well and wanted to quit. How did you guys end up finishing the race? Well, yeah, midway.、Uh, well, Kevin was injured. I was injured. Charlie was injured. We were all injured at different points, but we were there for each other. And I mean, that is sort of you know, people ask me what's more difficult,、uh, team or solo, and what's easier, team or solo. And guess what the answer is for both team or solo. I mean, it's it, it, there's positives and negatives, and、um, in in the case of the team in that aspect, Charlie and I were there for Kevin, and he was able to get through his injury, and we worked together in the same way that the guys were there for me when I was injured. And maybe you reduce your mileage, maybe you're seeking treatment, you're doing whatever you can, but you're working together for that one common goal.、Mm-hmm. So in the end, what was it like when you guys finally reached the Red Sea? Well, it was extraordinary, and to be honest with you. You're hundred and eleven days, like no days off. It's a long, long time. You think about what you were doing hundred and eleven days ago. Like, you know, prior to us recording this podcast, hundred eleven days ago was what, like around holidays time in December or something. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And that's it's spring and it's twenty five degrees out. Reaching the edge of the Red Sea with our hands propped above the water, I'll never forget looking at our three hands and thinking to myself, "Wow, our hands are the same." And the reason I thought that, and that thought hit me, it, I realized in that moment that I did this thing with these two guys, like we did it shoulder to shoulder the entire way, against all odds that all three of us would get there. We all got there together, and I thought to myself, "Wow, like truly, there's no limits to what human beings can do if they set their minds to it." You know, like I was a guy who seven, eight years before that day was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. You know, and there I am standing at the edge of the Red Sea. It's not a lot of time standing between me and an unhealthy lifestyle. So where I was in the Red Sea and an unhealthy lifestyle. So we can do some amazing stuff. We really can. Human beings can do some pretty amazing things.、Mm-hmm. How do you finance your expeditions and support yourself as a professional adventurer these days? Well, I rely on、uh, funding from sponsors. I mean, for sure, that's the way I'm able to do the expeditions that I do. Uh, the organization Impossible to Possible, which is five hundred one c three charity in the United States of America and nonprofit in Canada, relies mostly on corporate funding and corporate donations and sponsorship. That's how I do what I do now to you know take care of my family and you know my daughters who I swear eat more than I do.、Um, and, you know we I, I do corporate speaking, so I speak it for companies all over the world. Um, which one would, you know, sort of anticipate with with someone who does what I do for a living, right? I got lots of stories to tell, lots of great photos, and as well, you know, I've written a few books, and I'm working on a third one right now. And then I guide. I have a guiding company called Capic One, and we have our own line of coffee as well. And so I guide adults now on expeditions all over the world of their own. And I got to tell you, it's super rewarding for me. It is so awesome. I took. I'm taking two groups to the Atacama Desert in November. I couldn't be more excited. I mean, I'm super stoked because they're going to spend a week with me in the Atacama, learning about navigation, learning about the desert, learning about you know how to manage themselves from a fueling perspective and running in the desert and looking at the stars at night and camping under the stars and sharing food together. And it's just a great experience, and I love seeing them. Seeing in them the same thing from adventure that I felt when I first started doing this stuff, that I see in our youth ambassadors. It's this excitement and wonderment in discovering things about themselves, 
bonding with other people from around the world that small groups, I mean, I'm taking only six to eight people on these trips and there there's this thing, this magic that happens with adventure. Right. And that's what they're experiencing. And so, anyhow, so that's, I, I do the guiding as well. Um, and that helps to sustain our massive grocery bills at home. So yeah, I'm a professional explorer, but at the end of the day, I have these different, you know, modes of fundraising if it's for my charity or if I'm trying to earn a living or if I'm trying to cover expenses for an expedition. Mm -hmm. I feel like in our current age, we don't have that many explorers anymore. Why is that? You know what? I feel, I feel it's quite the opposite. I mean, if you look at social media these days, if you're looking at Instagram, the amount of people getting out and traveling, I mean, post-pandemic, obviously, all of that aside, people that are moving around now, you just see people all over the world posting photos and videos from some extraordinary places. Is specifically an endurance-based style of adventure? Maybe not. Sometimes it is. But I see more photos of remote mountains that I've never seen before. So I think that people are starting to get outside and explore a little bit more, which makes me really happy because that that does is that nurtures an appreciation of the planet. Yep. I want to ask you a little bit more about your uh, expedition to the South Pole. Can you tell us a bit more about that expedition and what were some of the challenges of that expedition compared to your desert expeditions? It's interesting. If you include all the impossible to possible youth expeditions, I think I'm phew, 33, 34 expeditions now that I've, that I've attempted, completed, or thereof, some mix. And going to the South Pole, you know, it was super, at the time, super difficult uh, to do. You know, since then, doing Canadian Arctic or Siberia, you know, winter in Russia expeditions, they were just, in some ways, I don't want to say more difficult, just more challenging for me personally. We each find our own, like, you know, personal challenge is very much a relative thing as well. But I find the Canadian Arctic in winter so, can be so brutal because it's dark and there's polar bears and it's cold and it's a mix of being on sea ice and over land. And, you know, you don't want to break through that ice, which I've done. Um, going to Antarctica, you're in the world's largest desert, right? So you're crossing the world's largest desert. But we essentially pulled sleds that weighed in excess of 185 pounds each. My two buddies, Kevin, Richard, and I, the three of us. And they went on ski. I went on foot. And we went from Hercules Inlet on the coast of Antarctica to um, the geographic South Pole over the course of 33 days, 23 hours, and 55 minutes, which, I mean, is ridiculous that we got there in five minutes under 24, uh, you know, the, the 24 hour mark, but that's what happened. And, you know, it was an incredible experience. And, and I think mostly because we were connecting with students the entire way that we were going. And from the sat phone calls that we were doing, they were so jazzed on the fact that we were doing this expedition and that we were hustling as, as fast as we were. I mean, it became a thing. And the students had us as excited to keep going and pushing as hard as we could as we were. And that's how it ended, it ended up being a world, uh, a world record. Like we were the fastest to get to the South Pole unsupported. And at the time, you know, we laughed because we had all this extra camera gear, all this extra, you know, communications gear so that we could continue with this online learning resources and communicating with schools. But you know, that extra weight paid huge dividends because we had 
all of our extended teammates in classrooms all over the world who were, you know, cheering us on and and actually I think made the world record possible. So it was a it was a crazy trip. An interesting thing, it's uphill the entire way, obviously, because you know, Antarctica is shaped like a contact lens, like the plateau, right? So you're, you know, the South Pole, I think, is at what is it, 3,000 meters, 2,500 meters or 3,000 meters of altitude? So you go uphill, basically. When you leave the coast, when you're sort of leaving that frozen inlet, Hercules Inlet, um, and you're climbing onto the Antarctic Plateau, it's steep for, I, I can't remember, it's 2009, but it felt like a few days at least of pulling heavy sleds across crevasses and you know up these steep pitches to get to a point where you know, eventually it would be flatter. But you were also always 100% of the time in a headwind because the winds, of course, are coming from the South Pole down to the coast, right? So that was also a um, very predictable wind. If you went straight into the wind, you knew you were headed due south to the South Pole. Yeah, that sounded really tough, but you make it sound like it was super fun and exciting. <laughs> Well, it was tough. I mean, look, at you forget sometimes, you know, as we as we know, when you remember these things from the past, these hard things, you tend to pull out the best parts, right? <laughs> and you forget, you start to forget or maybe even block out the worst parts. But I mean, look, at we had some injuries out there too. I ate some bad salami one day. I remember that. And I was, you know, sick the whole next day. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff like that going on too. But more, more than not, it was an incredibly positive experience. And I got to tell you, the worst injury I had was I pulled an abdominal muscle. I was laying on my side in my sleeping bag and my buddies had me laughing so hard that I pulled an abdominal muscle and I was sore for days because we were laughing so hard. So, I mean, that part of it was great. You know, the tent, I looked forward to the tent and hanging out in the tent every night more than anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Given your personal experience, it's your belief that anybody can achieve something extraordinary with their life. My question is, where does one start? I've been asked this many times before, and can I give a, a story? I, somebody reached out to me once and on social media, and they sent me a message, and they said, hey, listen, I've been following your trips for years. I'm not a runner or a hiker, but I would really like to do something like this someday. And I'd really, I've set my goal. I want to be able to run a 5K, but I'm basically glued to the couch. I have no idea how to get started. And they said, how am I ever going to run five kilometers? They were thinking of the whole five kilometers, let alone owning a pair of running shoes of any kind, right? Athletic shoes at all. And I said, okay, so day one, this is what you do. You get up from the couch and you walk to your front door and that's it. And you walk back to the couch and do whatever you do normally every day. Day two, you walk to the front door, you put on whatever shoes you got. You walk to the end of your laneway. This person lived in a house, so they had a laneway. You walk to the end of your laneway. And then you stop, you turn around and you go back. And then day three, you set up to go 500 meters further down the road. Then we're going to double it. Then the day after that, you're going to walk for a kilometer. Then you're going to walk for two kilometers. And they lived in, in close to a town. And I said, eventually you're going to walk three and a half, I think it was, to their local sports shop where they could get a pair of running shoes fitted. And then whatever shoes it is, <laughs> you walk to that store and you throw those things out and you walk home in your running shoes. And it begins. And so, in other words, it wasn't about, they, of course they could walk to their front door and back. Like, they could, they could walk to the end of the laneway and back. They could have did that. They didn't, they didn't need the training to do that. 
But what they needed was to create for themselves a process that had goals that were achievable Mm -hmm. in every day. And so after a while, after a period of time, that person went on to walk, run their first 5K, and they could not believe that just a few months before, they were living this somewhat sedentary life and of their own and just dreaming of what could be. But they took the first step. And that initiative of taking that first step and then creating a process eventually got them to their goal. And that's how you find the extraordinary in your life. You find it one step at a time. Or like we were saying about eating the elephant before, one bite at a time. It doesn't just appear sometimes for... I guess for some people, if you're super lucky, you win the lottery, boom, there it is. You got, you, you know, you, you have your extraordinary, but it's not always how it happens, right? There's a process. Who were some of the most influential mentors in your life? Terry Fox, for sure. I mean, Terry Fox redefined in our minds what was humanly possible. Think about it, right? I mean, before Terry Fox, the thought of endurance, and we've seen Olympians and we've seen, but Terry Fox, this man, shows up on the scene and does something so incredible and audacious and philanthropic and uh, driven and inspiring that you couldn't help absorb, uh, you know, some of, you know, what he was doing and what he was achieving. I still say he's, to me, the greatest of all times. And then my brother as well, being a great inspiration, the great inspirations and mentors that we have in our life don't necessarily have to be those household names. They can be those people in your own life, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So what's your next goal for, I guess, the next few years when it comes to um, your expeditions or uh, some of the trips you want to do and the things you want to conquer next? You know, and and, uh, with with the greatest of respect, I say, you know, I'm not into expeditions for conquering lands or any of them. That's not why I do the things I do. I want to, as I carry on in my career continue to approach these places with sensitivity, with appreciation, and with an open mind to learn from the people who live, from the indigenous peoples that live in the places that I visit, and share that knowledge as much as I can, utilizing latest technology, satellite, et cetera, to take those expeditions and immerse them in classrooms and bring those classrooms back out onto those expeditions with me. So, you know, from a personal perspective, I'll be back in Death Valley. I'll be back up on Ellesmere next February. I'll be doing expeditions that for me are, are compelling and rewarding, but I hope even more rewarding for the students that I'm connecting them to. With Impossible Possible, the goal is post-pandemic to get things rocking again. I mean, before the pandemic, we were doing expeditions every year with youth ambassadors. And then we had to stop for three, four years, right? So now we're getting going again. And the, this year, it's going to be a slow year where this funding is really tight, right? Where everybody's the world economy, right? And the, the situation that we're in. So we're slowly building back up. I want to get that ramp back up again, getting kids out there, exploring the outdoors, you know? So that's really critical for me. So that's sort of my, my long-term plans. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for sharing your story with us today. And um, I look forward to following your next expedition and the stories from them. Thank you so much. It was great being with you today. Ray Zahab is a Canadian adventurer, ultra runner, and the founder of Impossible to Possible. You can check out his website at rayzahab.com. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google, and head over to cc-wang.com. That's s-i-s-s-i-w-a-n-g.com for more interviews like this one. Plus, read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.